Good morning, Three Rivers. If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. My sister-in-law asked my son, John, who's three this morning, John, are you bringing your Bible to church today? He said, nope, I'm not preaching. Daddy is. And so uh, even though you may not be preaching, I hope you have a Bible with you so you can follow along in God's word today. Genesis chapter 18. We have been studying hospitality for the last four weeks, and today we continue our study in Genesis, uh, which, by God's good providence, is about hospitality. Um, I'd love to say that we're smart enough to plan that, but we're not. Um, but God is so much better at orchestrating events for our good, even our preaching schedules. And so, uh, this is good. We're in Genesis chapter 18 today. Genesis chapter 18, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 15. And I'm preaching this morning on this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. Three rivers, this is God's word to you. And the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on. Since you have come to your servant. So they said. Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly. Into the tent to Sarah. And said quick. Three sayas of fine flour. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd. And took a calf. Tender and good. And gave it to a young man. Who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no. But you did laugh. Let's pray. 
Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's passage looks like it's about hospitality. And like many of the passages that we've studied over the last four weeks, hospitality is not really the main point of this story. But, as we've seen in many of these stories, hospitality is the context in which God speaks and accomplishes His purposes. Now, that being said, there's some things that we're going to learn this morning from Abraham's hospitality. But this passage is really divided into two parts. Maybe you heard that as I was reading it to you. The first eight verses, verses 1 through 8, is about the Lord's visit to Abraham. And the second half, verses 9 to 15, is the Lord's announcement that Sarah would have a son. In the first half, Abraham shows generous, gracious hospitality to these three strangers. In the second half, the Lord announces that Sarah will have a son and Sarah laughs and the Lord rebukes her. And what we find is that this introduction, this first eight verses, God's visit to the tent is more of an announcement. It's more of an introduction to his announcement to Sarah later that she is going to have a son. What we're going to find out is that in the context of hospitality, these two passages are purposefully connected to emphasize God's marvelous work for his people. And so let's read this together and let's look at this carefully. In verses one through eight, we see the Lord's visit in the previous chapter. What has just happened? We have seen Abraham has just finished circumcising all of the men of his household, including Ishmael and all of his servants. God had promised that he would give Abraham a son. And he said, I'm going to give you a sign of this covenant, which would be the sign of circumcision. So Abraham is obeying the Lord to keep the sign of the covenant. And suddenly, without warning. The Lord shows up at his tent. Look at verse one. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Sometimes when I was in school, teachers would ask us to, to write a little paragraph about if you could have dinner with anybody, past or present, who would it be? And we always think about what would happen if the president were to come to my house or what would happen if Babe Ruth were to come to my house? You know, what would happen if if. If someone famous were to come to my house and have dinner with us, that would be a really cool thing. Well, what would you do if the Lord showed up to your house for dinner? This is what happens to Abraham. We're told that these three men suddenly appear at the entrance of Abraham's tent. Scholars question who these three men exactly are. Some of them say that one of them is the Lord, while the other two are angels. That appears to be what it is as you look at chapter 19, where two of them go to visit Sodom. There's actually some scholars that believe that all three of the men in some way are the Lord. There's a Trinitarian hint here that the Lord is expressing himself in three men. The point here, what is clear to us, is that the Lord is present when these three men show up at the tent. And Abraham... We're not sure if he immediately recognizes that it's the Lord, but but he at least recognizes that these men are to be highly honored. You see this when he comes and he says, oh, Lord, please don't pass by my tent. He uses the word here, Adonai, not the word Yahweh, but the word Adonai. He recognizes these men are really important. I'm not really sure who they are yet, 
But over the course of dinner and over the course of this conversation, Abraham's going to get the point. This is the Lord that has visited me. But as this story continues, there's a few things that we notice about Abraham and that Abraham notices about these men that gives away the fact that this is not just ordinary visitors. These are not three random strangers. This is the Lord. Let me give you some clues, some things that kind of tip off Abraham that this is not just some ordinary person passing by. First, notice that these strangers show up unannounced. Abraham doesn't see them coming. He doesn't see them coming off from a distance. He's literally sitting at his tent. He lifts up his eyes and boom, here they are. Three men. Now that should get your attention. Second, Abraham greets these men using the word Lord. Adonai, which is reserved for the Lord himself. That word is used when speaking to the Lord. Abraham recognizes this person's different. Third, and we're going to see this later in the text. They ask the question, where is Sarah, your wife? Not Sarai. Notice in chapter 17, Sarah's, or Sarai's name had been changed to Sarah. This was a new covenant name. Abram's name had been changed to Abraham because he would be the father of many nations. But it wasn't just Abram's name who's changed. It's Sarai's name. Sarai's name would be changed to Sarah. She is to be a princess of nations. How did this man know that Sarah's name had been changed? Maybe he was the one who changed her name. Fourth thing we see is that it's the Lord and here, later on in the text, all capital letters, Lord, which is the designation Yahweh, promises to visit again next year to give Sarah a child. He says this later in the text. You know, by this time, Abraham gets the point, right? The Lord here made this promise that Sarah would have a son. And finally, we're going to see later, Sarah laughs to herself, and this man knows her thoughts. Only God can do this. And so what do we see here as how does Abraham respond when the Lord shows up at the tent? The point of this passage is not hospitality. And yet there's some things we can learn here about Abraham's graciousness as a host to the Lord. So there's six things I want to point out here in verses one to eight. Um, and so here's some things that I think we can take from Abraham's example to show us that we can kind of put a bow on this whole series of hospitality. The first thing we see here in Abraham's life is that hospitality takes the initiative. Hospitality is not passive, but it takes the initiative. Look, look there at verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door. Now, in Old Testament times, it was very uncommon for men, especially older men, to run anywhere. It was an undignified thing for them to do. So Abraham runs to the door and bows himself down to the earth and speaks to these men of honor. When I think of this, I think of people taking the initiative in hospitality. You don't just wait for someone else to come and, and for you to be hospitable. The hospitable host takes the initiative. Perfect example of this, uh, our first night when we went to our first night at the Cones Radical Life Group. Uh, Eric and Anna Lauren have trained their children well uh, because when we showed up our first night at their house, uh, Gabriel and Selah, um, two of their children, came out, ran out to meet us, and they had colored pictures for my two children, John and Lydia. 
And they said, welcome to our home. Come in, come in. And they were giving them colored pictures and they had these cool invitation things they had printed out and they were handing it out. They took the initiative. They ran out to meet us. They didn't wait for us to get to the door. They ran out to meet us. And I think this is the approach we take when we see new people come into our own church, when people are, are our guests. We, we don't just... We don't just wait for them to come and talk to us. We take the initiative, maybe even meeting them out in the parking lot. Now, it might be weird for us to go and bow down to them in the parking lot and say, oh, Lord, please don't pass by this congregation. But we, we at least want to take the initiative, right? We, want, we don't want to be passive in our hospitality. Abraham takes the initiative and runs to them. Second thing, hospitality seeks to honor the guest. Hospitality whether it's in the church or whether it's in your home or whether it's in your life, seeks to honor the guest. Abraham here bows down to the earth and says, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. He is insistent. You must stay with me. You must come to my house. You must stay here with me. And I think when we take the initiative in hospitality, we're also seeking to honor the other person. When we see the guest come into the room, we, we want to honor them. Come sit with me. Hey, you, you, yeah, yeah, don't pass by. Hey, hey, do you know where the restroom is? Do you know where radical kids are? Do, do, do you know where you're going? Can I help you in any way? Can I honor you here? You come sit here. You take my seat. Third, hospitality is ultimately done for the Lord. Hospitality is not... Not really all about the guest. It's not really about you, the host. It's about honoring the Lord. We certainly believe that the Lord is at least one of the three men recognized here in this tent that have come to meet Abraham. And Abraham, whether he initially recognizes the Lord or not, treats the guest as more significant than himself. This should remind us of Jesus' words in Matthew 25, verse 40. When Jesus said that the king in the last day will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Except in this case, Abraham's not doing it to just anybody. He actually is doing it to the Lord himself. He is serving the Lord. And I think for us to to be able to be good hosts, gracious hosts in our lives, in our homes, in our churches we have to recognize ultimately we're serving people for the glory of God. We're doing this as if we're serving Jesus himself. Fourth thing. These are simple, but I think it's worth pointing out. Fourth thing. Hospitality is sacrificial. In other words, when we're hospitable, we should give our best and not leftovers. And I don't just mean leftovers of food. I mean leftovers of time and energy. We want to give our best. Hospitality is sacrificial. It's possible here that Abraham is sitting in the heat of the day, in the shadows, in the shade of the oaks of Mamre, while he's recovering from circumcision. And then three. Abraham says, and I want you to see how he makes a sacrifice here. Look at verse 4. He kind of downplays what he's about to do. I don't know if this is intentional. Verse 4. Let a little water be brought. 
and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. All right. So just just let me get you a little bit of water, a little cup, a little Dixie cup. Let me get you just a bite of bread. I got some some little cakes here. Crackers. And then he runs into the tent. And it's not even a complete sentence. He tells Sarah. Quick. Three sayas of fine flour. If you don't know what a saya is. Six gallons of flour. Is how much he's talking about. Six, for three people. I don't know what he's thinking. Just six gallons. Everything you got. Clear the pantry. Get all the food. Six gallons of flour. Knead it and make cakes. Oh, and we're not just talking about cakes. He goes out back and kills a cow. We're cooking out tonight. Open the grill. Start the fire. And then he tells his servant, prepare this calf, tender and good. And then he he doesn't get water. He gets curds and milk. He brings the good stuff out for these guests. It is sacrificial. This is costly. He, He brings it all out to his servants and gives them more than they could ever eat. Hospitality is always costly for the host. And yet, the host joyfully sacrifices his own resources to bless the guest. If you've ever been in another country, specifically African countries, you know what true hospitality is about. When I went to Kenya several years ago, we would go from house to house in these villages. And I got so sick of drinking tea. Because every house, they had, you had to drink tea. And then you had to eat their fruit. And then they were going to give you their food. And then they were going to cook a meal. And after the fourth house of eating their food, I was so full. But you can't tell them no. Right? And they just keep, and they give you everything. Here, take my food. Take my stuff. You take the couch. I'll sit on the floor. You come be the honored guest. And they are so hospitable to the point where it's uncomfortable because they're treating you so well. Hospitality may be inconvenient, but it is meant to be sacrificial. And the person who is trying to honor the Lord, if you have the right attitude and being hospitable, it, even though it may come at great cost to you, that cost is nothing in comparison to the great joy you get from hosting people. Yes, at your home. People may come to your homes. They use your electricity. They eat your food. They flush your toilets. They require attentions. They take up your time. They drain your energy. And yet, as gracious host never counts that as loss but as pure gain it is a joy to expend my resources for the sake of my guest this is what hospitality is it's sacrificial fifth hospitality seeks to serve not to be served this is simple but i want you to look at verse eight He took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And notice what he does. He stood by them under the tree while they ate. Abraham did not sit down to eat with them, but he stood by just in case they needed anything. Abraham was not seeking to be served, but to serve. Finally, as we wrap this bow on hospitality... Number six, hospitality goes the extra mile. Now, this is not part of our text today, but I do want you to see verse 16 after they leave. Verse 16, then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom 
And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. I think as Christians who have been transformed by the gospel, we should never seek to do the bare minimum in serving other people. We don't just point them in the right direction to radical kids. We walk with them. We don't just point them to a seat. We help them find someone to sit with or we sit down with them ourselves. We don't just promise to pray for people, but we actually pray for them in the moment. We act and we go the extra mile. This applies not just to our guests, but even to our enemies. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. We go the extra mile in serving. He doesn't just bring them into the tent, but he walks with them to make sure they get set out on their way. And as we talk all about hospitality here, I've told you all of that to say that hospitality is not the point. Good lesson. That's not the point. Okay, so if hospitality is not the point of this story, then what is? The point of this story, verses 1 to 8, is all about the fact that the Lord came to eat with his covenant people. And so we can't miss the importance of this meal because it's in the context of this meal that God's going to make a promise to Abraham and to Sarah. By the way. As far as I know, this is the only time in the Old Testament where God actually eats with his people. And God's covenant promise occurs in the context of a covenant meal. That's the point here. This covenant meal is a sign that assures Abraham Abraham, that he is at peace with the Lord. And so we need to do a quick survey of of the Old Testament. And I want to just show you some pictures of the Old Testament of what a covenant meal entails of, of providing peace between God and his people. In Genesis chapter 26, Isaac makes a covenant with King Abimelech that is initiated through a meal. Listen to this, Genesis 26 verse 28. Abimelech said to Isaac, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. And let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Covenant peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So Isaac made them a feast and they ate and drank. See the three things. A meal where there's a covenant and they are at peace. Now I want you to take your Bibles quickly and turn to Exodus 24. This one you've got to read. I want you to see this one for yourself. Hold your place in Genesis 18. Quickly go to Exodus chapter 24. Because I I, I believe Moses is writing Genesis for these people In the book of Exodus, the people coming out of Egypt, and this is going to have great significance for them. As they think back to this meal with Abraham, they're going to think about this in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, God has given the law, he's given the Ten Commandments, and now he's going to call Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel to the top of Mount Sinai. And before they go, they make burnt offerings as Moses approaches the Lord, he's going to sprinkle some of the Blood on the people is a sign of atonement. And then we read these staggering verses in verses 9 to 11. Exodus 24, verse 9. All right, get this. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. 
They saw him. There were under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Verse 11. And he and God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. In other words, he didn't kill them, even though they saw him. But they beheld God. They saw him and ate and drank. A covenant meal. They make a sacrifice that covers them for their sin. And they are allowed to go up to the mountain where God says, if you come this far, you will die. And God allows them to see his glory. And he doesn't lay his hand on them. And yet they see him. And in the middle of this peace, they eat and they drink. See the see it covenant meal. Peace with God, eating and drinking. Let me give you another one. Leviticus chapter three. You don't have to turn there. But in Leviticus three, God institutes the peace offering. All right. And if you read Leviticus chapter one, burnt offering for sin. Chapter two, grain offering. Chapter three, peace offering. The peace offering was when an animal would be sacrificed. Its blood and its fat would be burned on the altar. But the rest of the animal would be eaten by the worshiper and the priest as a sign that the worshiper was at peace. Peace with God. That's why it was called a peace offering. You eat of the meal, part of the sacrifice, to show that you are at peace with God. So here it is again. Eating the meal, covenant meal, peace with God. Quickly, Judges chapter 6. Don't have time to tell you the whole story, but in Judges 6, Gideon receives a visitation from an angel, makes a sacrifice. The angel of the Lord consumes it by fire on the altar. And the message of the Lord in Judges 6 is peace. Which Gideon names that altar. The Lord is peace. Meal, peace, covenant. Get to the New Testament. By now you should see the connection. John chapter 6. Jesus himself taught that sacrifices were bound together with eating and drinking. Including his own sacrifice for our sins. Jesus taught that union with him being united to Christ would be based on eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Meaning, of course, applying his sacrificial death to your life by And then he takes it one step further as we just celebrated at the table. Matthew chapter 26. The church's celebration of union with Christ takes the form of eating and drinking at the Lord's table. Here we have in this meal that we just shared together. The covenant, the new covenant, being at peace with God, shared around a meal. It's all over the Bible. That God shares in a covenant meal with his people to show that he is at peace with them. He does it in in Luke chapter 19 where he goes to Zacchaeus' house. Hospitality. He goes to his house, eats and drinks with him. And he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry up. Come down from that tree because today I must stay at your house. And when he gets to the house, what does he say? Today salvation has come to this house. Even in Revelation chapter 3. The imagery of peace and the meal is used in the letter to the Laodiceans. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him. The point of Genesis 18, 1 to 8, is that God 
by coming to Abraham's tent and eating with him is to show Abraham we are in covenant with one another and you are at peace with me. And it's in the context of peace that he's going to make this announcement. Now we get to the Lord's announcement, verses 9 to 15. This is what the story was really all about. And it is in the context of hospitality that it happens. Verse 9. Now we get the clue. Why did they come? Verse 9. They said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. See, it was customary for women not to eat in the presence of the guests who were men. So Sarah met, remained in the tent out of view. So the men make sure that Sarah is able to hear what is about to be said. And then comes this announcement in verse 10. After he's asked, where's Sarah? She's in the tent. Verse 10, the Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah, verse 10, was listening at the door behind him. Sarah's listening to this and she hears this promise. I was perplexed by this for, for a long time this week as I'm reading, what is the point of this? And then I realized that maybe the Lord's purpose in coming to Abraham's tent wasn't really to visit Abraham, but for Sarah. Did you know up until this point in Genesis, nothing has been said of Sarah's faith? In Genesis 12, Abram is called to go to a promised land. He's promised to become a great nation and a blessing to all nations. And so he believes this and takes Lot and Sarai and his family. In Genesis 13, after Abram and Lot separate, God promises Abram that the land will be his as far as his eye can see. In Genesis 14, he rescues Lot from a civil war between Canaanite kings. Melchizedek comes and reminds Abram of God Most High who gave him victory and who is his reward. In Genesis 15, God's promise becomes a little more explicit. And then although Abraham struggles to believe, he still thinks Eliezer of Damascus will be his heir. God insists that he will give Abram a son. And it says Abram believes and God counted him as righteous. And despite his faith in Genesis 16, we see Sarai still struggling as she convinces Abram to take Hagar, her servant, as a surrogate mother seeking to fulfill the promise and here we see Sarai's own struggle to believe the promise. Abram goes along with her word. And finally, in Genesis 17, Isaac's birth is promised. God gives a sign of circumcision as a promise to keep his covenant. And Abraham, once again, carries out the sign, believing God. But we've heard nothing about whether or not Sarah's on board. This doesn't mean... And I don't want to imply that Sarah had totally rejected God's promises. We're not told that. But like Abraham, she's struggling to believe. And we're reminded why she's struggling to believe in verse 11 here. Verse 11 says, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Her barrenness was weighing on her mind, making it difficult for her to believe that she could have children from her womb. She had tried to fix the problem by giving her servant Hagar, but that plan had backfired. And now there's a strange man in her tent saying that she's going to have a son within the next year. It's hard to blame her, right, for being a little skeptical. 
And I don't want to imply that Sarah was somehow rebellious or unwilling to follow Abraham. In fact, the opposite is true because the Apostle Peter uses this passage to show Sarah's submission to Abraham by calling him Lord as a sign of true beauty and godliness for women. This doesn't mean that Sarah had completely rejected the promise, but she's struggling to believe it. And so now God has to visit Sarah. If God's going to bless the nations through Abraham, then his wife must be on board with God's program. God's covenant to Abraham must be fulfilled through the covenant of marriage. Not through Hagar, but through Sarah. And now just as God had confronted Abraham's lack of faith, now he's going to confront Sarah's unbelief. And so how does Sarah respond to this whole thing? Verse 12, she laughed to herself. Not out loud, that would be rude. She just laughed to herself. Sarah's post-menopausal. She's 90 years old. It's physically impossible for her to bear children. She can't help but humor herself at the thought of having a child. But she could not have prepared herself for what was about to happen. Because while she's laughing to herself inside that tent, out of view of the Lord, with his back turned to her, the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? Now, if she didn't know it was the Lord by now, she definitely knows it's the Lord after he just read her mind. That's a scary thing when someone can read your thoughts This strange visitor who shows up at her doorstep has just called her out on the thoughts of her heart. She shouldn't have laughed, especially if she'd known whom she was laughing at. But then the visitor's question next drives the point home. Why did she laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The word hard here can mean wonderful. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? You see, it's not just that the Lord can do difficult things, but He especially delights in doing wonderful hard things. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? In other words, what sounds too good to be true for man can be so good because God makes it true. Caught red-handed, Sarah immediately denies it. I, 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 I didn't laugh. And without missing a beat, the Lord, with Sarah still in the tent, with his back turned, says, Oh no, but you did laugh. God leaves. The story ends on that note, on this rebuke to Sarah. Oh, but you did laugh. This is meant to be instructed because Abraham and Sarah were both to remember their response to the promise. Remember, in Genesis 17, Abraham laughed. And in Genesis 18, Sarah laughs. But guess who gets the last laugh? It will be the Lord because he's going to name their child Isaac, which means he laughs. Every time that they name their child, he laughs. He laughs. He, hey, he laughs. Come here. Hey, he laughs. Clean up your room. Hey, he laughs. Come up to this mountain. I've been laughing my whole life thinking I wouldn't have a child. And yet the Lord gets the last laugh. The whole point of this is that God chose to do the impossible so that the promised seed, the child, were to always be known as the Lord's doing and not Abraham and Sarah's. You may laugh at what the Lord promises, but he always gets the last laugh. And the point here should be clear for us that God expects his people to believe his promises because nothing is too difficult for him. 
And if I'm honest, Sarah's not the only one that's ever laughed at the promises of God. If we're honest, there's probably been times we've all struggled to believe God's word at some point or another. This story is incredibly relevant for us. If you have ever questioned God's promises, if you have ever balked at his word or struggled to believe the wonderful guarantees of scripture, or maybe you've even laughed at the Lord, then maybe the Holy Spirit, may he pierce your doubtful heart with the same question that he raised to Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Someone here needs to be confronted with that question this morning because you are struggling with doubt. And I would ask you, is anything too hard for the Lord? This is how we make the connection. This is how we preach the gospel here. Know that you are not alone in your struggle to believe the Lord. Because 2,000 years ago, there was a virgin girl from Galilee living in an obscure village called Nazareth was presented with the most outlandish yet wonderful news in all of human history. That she would give birth to another promised child. A child of Abraham. A seed of Abraham. Who would come also at the appointed time. And who would fulfill all the wonderful promises that had been made to Abraham. This young girl's situation seemed impossible. Because unlike Sarah, she wasn't post-menopausal. She was premarital. It wasn't that she had a husband and she was too old. It's that she had never been married at all. She had never been with a man. And so Mary asked the question, how can this be since I am a virgin? Gabriel tells her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, that God most high would overshadow her and she would conceive and bear a son named Jesus. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, Gabriel gives the answer to the Lord's question to Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And Gabriel answers and says, with God, nothing is impossible. The true son of Abraham was born. The seed of Abraham, who through his life, death, and resurrection would bring the true blessing to all nations. And just like Isaac, Jesus came at just the right time. Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so those of us, those of you this morning who have been adopted as sons, you have been welcomed to the Lord's table. And whereas Abraham welcomed the Lord to his table, the Lord now welcomes us to his And because we eat the Lord's bread and we drink from the Lord's cup, we have now been justified by faith and we are now at peace with our Lord Jesus Christ. And because you are at peace this morning, nothing is too wonderful for him to accomplish in your life. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Nothing is incredible for those in covenant fellowship with the Lord because nothing is too marvelous for him. And so I would end here saying for the person this morning struggling with persistent sin, I would ask you, is anything too hard for the Lord? I would encourage you, look to Jesus and seek him today because nothing is impossible with God. For the college student who is praying for your lost roommate and wondering if your lost friend is too far gone, I would ask you this morning, is anything too hard for the Lord? Keep praying, keep sharing the gospel with your friend because salvation is of the Lord. Nothing is impossible with God. For the family who is struggling to make ends meet this morning and wondering how you are going to provide for your family, I would ask you, is anything too hard for the Lord? 
Trust him. He will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Because nothing is impossible with God. For the couple this morning who is seeking to foster and adopt. And you are overwhelmed at the process of paperwork. And the many challenges that come with taking a child into your home. I would ask you, is anything too hard for the Lord? Keep persevering. And do not grow weary this morning in doing good. For in due season you will reap if you don't give up. Because nothing is impossible with God. Three Rivers Church, our own mission this morning is to disciple the nations. This is humanly impossible and we will never ever do it in our own strength. But I would ask us this morning, as we look at the impossible task of discipling Rome, Georgia and the nations, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer from Scripture is one big resounding no. He has promised to be with us to the end of the age. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And people from all nations will one day worship with us because nothing is impossible with God. No challenge of restoration Rome is too hard for him. No Muslim country is too closed off for him. Secularism is not an obstacle. No family member is too lost for him to find. No friend of yours is too lost for him to save. Death cannot hold him. Hell cannot stop him. Church, put your confidence in these words. Let your soul find rest today and worship him because nothing is impossible with our Let's pray. Father, in Jesus name, let these words sink into our spirits and let us take bold risks for the sake of your kingdom, because we know nothing can stop your purposes. Nothing is impossible with you. Nothing is too wonderful for you. And you have promised that through a covenant of peace with your people. Father, we have come to your table. We have ate and drank of your sacrifice. We have we have. We have celebrated your presence. We know we are at peace today. And may that peace launch us out into mission. Being bold and fearless. Knowing that you are with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. And you will be with us always to the end of the age. And there is nothing that can stop your purposes. Because nothing is impossible with you. Let that be our banner today. As we go forth and live on mission for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.